The Guardian. Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS. Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. Hello, this is an extra business podcast for this week. I'm Madeline Bunting. The economist Jeff Sachs is famed for his work on globalization and its impact on developing world economies. Previous works have focused on Africa and South America, but now he's training his eyes on his own country, the United States and its troubled economy. And what he sees is a moral crisis as much as an economic one. This week he's in London and when he came into The Guardian, I began by asking about the problems on our own doorstep in Europe. First, the euro should be saved because if it fails, uh, Europe will have a huge crisis that will wash over the rest of the world. So I'm rooting for the success, the continuity of the eurozone. Second, the eurozone can be saved, but it requires the institutions of Europe to work a lot better than they have. The European Central Bank has to be a central bank. It can't just stand on the sidelines. It has to be a lender of last resort. The countries of the Eurozone are ready to be responsible. In fact, they have been responsible by and large. Greece, not so much for the past decade, but in the last two years, yes, undertaking the kind of austerity that it has to after the spending binge that it had. But I'm afraid that what I saw as an informal advisor uh, of the Greek government during this process was that the institutions of Europe are not really functioning. Uh, everything depends, and far too much depends, on what Chancellor Merkel is going to say. Uh, and what she says, unfortunately, is not based on a Europe-wide, highly professional analysis of the situation. It's based on maybe German coalition politics, uh, maybe the political pressures of the day, maybe some German ideas, or I would even say preconceptions, uh, that say this is all because of profligacy, uh, not because of the nature of how markets have worked, or too much lending by German banks, for example, that played a major role in the lead-up to the crisis. So I saw too much personalization, not enough systemic analysis, incredible weakness, or even shunting aside of the European-wide institutions and basically Germany calling the shots. And I don't think the Eurozone can survive on that basis. There needs to be professionalism and European-wide institutions working. That's what I hope comes about. You've described some of that as chaotic and unprofessional. Can you give us some idea about, about that? Is it that you're turning up, turn, uh, the Greek government turns up at meetings and things are unprepared for? How does that work? The Greek government was quite prepared, but no one was prepared to listen to the Greek government. Uh, there really wasn't adequate consultation or professionalization of uh, understanding the crisis. The Greek crisis is very complex. Of course, the, the budget policy is part of it, but also is the intense financial crisis that came when uh, Greek banks, of course, got into big trouble, and then all of the interbank credit lines in Europe got withdrawn from Greek banks. All of a sudden, you have a Greek economy that can't even finance working capital. That's why the Greek economy is going down. If the European process has been more professional, the European Central Bank would have said, ah, we have a banking crisis here that we have to address. 
uh, Europe would have said, this isn't just a matter of austerity, austerity, austerity. It's a matter of making sure that interbank lines are actually existing and that small and medium enterprises in Greece and other parts of Europe can continue to get financed. That was not part of the discussion at all. From the German point of view, you've been profligate. You have to have austerity. We're going to tell you what to do. We're going to dictate the terms. We're going to tell you how much lending. You have to adjust. And I saw very, very little true, serious professional consultation for months at a time. And of course, one needs political leadership, but it has to be informed by sound professional analysis. And that was not happening. What you describe seems to me to indicate a build-up of political tensions which will be extremely hard to manage within the Eurozone. You say the Euro has to survive, but what are the chances? The Eurozone and the European project is absolutely dependent on a degree of representation in Europe. This can't be a German project. This has to be a European-wide project. It has to be an institutional project, not simply what Merkel or maybe Sarkozy says. It has to be based on sound analysis also. Europe has, of course, the total capacity to do all of that. That's, as an outsider, what I expect of Europe, of course, nothing less, because I take Europe as a great success. But when I saw the commission completely pushed to the sidelines. No one's interested in commission reports. Even the commission says, well, we don't really have much of a role. That's for Germany to say. This won't work. Even if Germany is the most powerful economy, Germany cannot simply dictate Europe-wide policies. And the rest of Europe won't uh, be able to survive in this kind of environment where the outcome of policies is the sum of internal German state and coalition politics. And this, I think, is the big surprise for me after all of the work on building the institutions of Europe, uh, that they turned out to be so weak at the moment of crisis, and that the European Central Bank itself, rather shockingly, couldn't understand the role of a central bank of the world's second most important currency, because it is. Uh, the eurozone and the euro is crucial for the international economy, but you have a central bank that says, oh, we don't really have much to do with this. Our uh, mandate uh, doesn't have us as a lender of last resort. Well, the Bank of England's been lender of last resort effectively for uh, a century and a half. Uh, and uh, this is a, a well-understood role, frankly, since about 1873 when Walter Badgett first uh, discussed uh, very well in Lombard Street what to do. And for the European Central Bank in the early 21st century to be taking the view that it has is self-destructive because it has opened this currency to self-fulfilling prophecies of doom. And that, that's what has to be reversed. And you're not telling me the chances of the euro surviving, are you? You don't want to? I don't know what the chances are, of course, but I'm more of uh, suggesting what needs to be done to solve the problem rather than a predictor. I'm, I'm not gambling in the markets. I, I don't have uh, money on this. When you hear voices of doom, they're betters. Uh, I'm not gambling. What I'm trying to say is here's what needs to be done, and this should be done because the euro surviving is a good thing, and we should try to make it happen. 
I want to switch to another vital area of the global economy and the political leadership there, and that's the US. Can you give us some idea about what is happening in US politics and what chances there are the US playing the kind of crucial leadership role that's needed? First, the U.S. is in a structural crisis, and it's an ongoing structural crisis. Our society is more unequal, more divided, more wealth at the top, more poverty at the bottom than we've had in decades. Nothing is being done to address the structural problems. Our unemployment, which is very high, is also structural because we have one-third of our young people finishing a bachelor's degree, two-thirds not finishing a bachelor's degree, and in the world economy of today, if you have a high school diploma, you're not going to be able to find a middle-class job by and large. And so unless we get serious about education, serious about job training, serious about helping poor kids find their way through, this is true for all of our societies, we're just going to end up with incredibly divided societies and very low social mobility. The Republicans could care less. Their whole politics is directed towards increasing wealth at the top. The Democrats, who ostensibly represent the working class and the middle class, they wring their hands, but they go along with the Republican position more or less because they go to the same heavy hitters for their campaign financing. So money has driven American politics to the right. We have one far-right party, which is the Republican Party, and we have one center-right party, which is the Democratic Party. We don't even have a center party, much less a center-left party. Uh, and the whole political spectrum is open. You would think that a political entrepreneur could come in, but the fact of the matter is we have a two-party duopoly. Money drives the process. There is no competition, and the American people are not represented right now. And global leadership, you drew a very interesting analogy between the 1930s and today and the fact that the 1930s lacked global leadership because this was the decline of British global leadership and the US had yet to sort of step up to the plate. And you drew the analogy with now. Can you explain a little bit more about this very interesting point? A great late economic historian, Charles Kindleberger of MIT, said that the Great Depression was so serious because there was no global provision of public goods the U.S. wouldn't lead. It didn't even come to the international conference uh, in 1933. And FDR global, didn't want to attend. By global pol uh, pol public goods, you would be talking about the institutions that govern globalization. Can you just yes? So the global public goods uh, in this context means being ready to provide uh, financing, being ready to provide leadership to guarantee financial stability, uh, being ready to uh, help with the rule of law, regulation of financial markets, uh, cracking down on uh, international tax corruption, uh, abiding by rules of regulation on, uh, for example, uh, climate change uh, and uh, carbon emissions. The United States is providing almost no global public goods right now. Uh, the U.S. is enmeshed in wars. Uh, but that's not global public goods. Uh, the United States on climate change drags its feet. The United States on uh, global financing, uh, say through uh, bolstering international resources through the IMF, drags its feet. Uh, the U.S. doesn't want China to have more role because that would diminish the U.S. relative role. But the U.S. doesn't want to take on more role itself because our politics are uh, at the elite level anti-multilateral to an important extent. Uh, Obama doesn't want to come back to the U.S. with the, any international treaties because he knows he'll get blasted from the right for that. Uh, so the fact is the U.S. is not leading right now. Uh, there is no 
shared leadership. Europe certainly isn't leading because it's so enmeshed in its own survival right now. China, India, other major powers are saying, not us, not our time. We're still developing. Don't count on us. And so we're really in another of those phases uh, in the world where there is a uh, startling decline of the U.S. role before our eyes. Uh, it's shocking for me to watch summit after summit internationally where the U.S. plays almost no role anymore. Uh, this is a fairly recent but dramatic development, but nobody else does either. Uh, and therefore, we're not making progress on global public goods, whether it's financial stability, uh, some uh, international tax enforcement, cracking down on uh, tax havens and all of the dangers that means, and uh, of course, uh, the, the environment uh, and sustainable development generally, or on climate change specifically. So crucial issues for the world are not being attended to, and don't wait for the U.S. to attend to them. The U.S. is not attending to them, and it's not going to be attending to them for years to come. Unless we find substitutes through shared action, we're not going to have provision of global public goods. And you've brought out a new book in which you put ethics in the title. And many people would say that's been part of our problem, that for several decades, economics and economists have not been prepared to incorporate ethics into their work. So I wondered if you could perhaps talk a little bit about the thesis of the book and how perhaps it relates to some of what you've been talking about, but also how you construct your ethical argument. What philosophical influences are you drawing on? I wrote a book, The Price of Civilization, to basically say the United States is not paying that price of civilization. The title comes from a line of Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., a great Supreme Court Justice of the United States, who said something unimaginable in our current political context in the U.S. He said, I like to pay taxes. That's the way I pay for civilization. Uh, and that was an enlightened early 20th century progressive era philosophy. And it said that elites should be the first in line to say, of course, tax us, because we need a social order. We need inclusion. We need public education. We need infrastructure. We need to control uh, disease and make sure that the environment is safe and so forth. And so I talk about civic virtue uh, in my book, and I say that the main loss of civic virtue is not of the American people, who remain pragmatic, moderate, decent, uh, and still saying, of course we should help poor people who need help. Of course we should tax the rich. Uh, the book is really directed towards the elites uh, in America who have lost it. Uh, I watch that process in academia as I watch colleagues gravitate towards Wall Street as if making money was uh, the end point for them of what uh, academic uh, uh, responsibility was. Uh, of course, among our politicians, uh, not only are they in it for uh, gaining campaign financing and are they dialing for dollars every day, which is what congressmen, senators, and presidents do these days in the United States. They raise billions of dollars to try to uh, win re-election. But now we're finding out more and more that simply the level of insider trading in Congress is itself scandalous, out of control, where congressmen sit on committees, they sit behind closed doors, they say we're going to write these regulations for the pharmaceutical industry, and then they call their brokers and they trade exactly on that, that information. So it's a kind of ethical corruption within the elite. 
that we, is the sort yes. of target of your, your book. We, we had a president who was, uh, of course, uh, a model uh, in, in my youth for what it meant when, when he said, ask not uh, uh, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. John Kennedy uh, exemplified the idea of uh, civic responsibility and civic virtue. And uh, the Peace Corps and many other contributions that he made were exactly that demonstration. I'm a believer in that. And uh, is it that you believe that out of a sort of self-interest, i.e. you then, if you, ha if you pay that contribution to society, you then end up living in a better society? Or, or is there some sort of self-sacrificial, some sort of you know, Christian notion of service for well, others? Well, I, I go back in, in this book to Aristotle and to Buddha, uh, which is uh, that uh, even for our own happiness, uh, it's uh, not only the bargaining with others, uh, but it is the fact that, as Aristotle said, we are social animals. We live in society. We derive uh, our uh, well-being from being in a healthy society and in healthy relations within those societies. Uh, the idea that compassion uh, is not only a wonderful calling, uh, a moral calling or a calling of the Gospels, but it's actually part of our human nature uh, that can bring benefit as well. But this is something that was well understood throughout American history where we had uh, in even the founding of the republic what was then called civic republicanism. Uh, the founding fathers uh, said that virtue and honor was the highest calling uh, and that they, their honorable role vis-a-vis -vis society was crucial. Where's the honor among our politicians today? Uh, they're self-dealing, uh, they're uh, corrupted, uh, they have sold their positions to powerful interests they promise change and don't deliver change, uh, or they don't even promise change and they just pocket you know, what they can of uh, their insider play. But the disaster right now is that we do not have representative democracy in its functional sense. American values and opinions are not represented in Washington. Americans want to tax the rich. They want to end these wars. They want to preserve government as effective provider of services like education. They're not getting any of those positions represented in Washington. The rich are getting their tax cuts, the wars go on, and government's getting slashed. And that is because of the lack of civic virtue, but rather the self-dealing of the elites. And it's unfortunately elites, whether it's the politicians, the CEOs that write their own ticket, and too much of academia as well. Can I just ask you to sort of look back over your career, Jeff? You mentioned Kennedy, who presumably you were quite young at the time. Yeah, and, I was. and Kennedy was a great inspiration to you. Over the course of that 30, 40 years, what's happened to public life? Have you seen a growing corruption? Is that part of, of your analysis? What made you take your particular position in this book? Where have the changes come? I grew up uh, uh, young in the Kennedy era and uh, then in uh, graduate school in what I would call intellectually the era of Paul Samuelson in economics, which uh, was an era of what we called the mixed economy. That, of course, markets were important, but so too was government as a fundamental provider of public goods like infrastructure and education, of fairness to make sure that the poor didn't suffer and that there was a, a respect for everybody's uh, basic needs, 
and of environmental protection and sustainability. And it's but surely with, that bit of, of the equation that got marginalized in the course of the 80s and 90s. Well, I think the, the decisive change can be marked to January 20th, 1981. Ronald Reagan became president that day. He said in his first inaugural address, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. Of course, his counterpart uh, in the UK was Margaret Thatcher. Same philosophy. Let's take down government. Uh, this is not playing a constructive role. We'll let the private uh, economy do all of these things. I think that that is a disastrous philosophy when it's taken uh, to those extremes. And in the United States, we've lived with 30 years of Reaganomics and Reaganism because while it may sound surprising, it remained right through the Clinton era. It remained, of course, through George W. Bush, and it remains, shockingly enough, right through the Obama era. Low taxes on the top, financial deregulation, breaking the bottom of government, uh, of government services for the bottom of the population. This has been a constant since 1981, and it hasn't really depended on Democrats or Republicans because the whole political system gravitated to the right wing we had the new Democrats, uh, uh, like UK had new labor, but the new Democrats, the trick of Clinton was to sell the Democratic Party to Wall Street. That became the alliance. They deregulated Wall Street. Ten years later, explosion, financial crisis. But Wall Street's still in the White House. Uh, Wall Street is still in uh, the Congress. We've not gotten over this phase. Do you see any significance in the Occupy movement? I think the Occupy movement is amazing in that in 11 weeks, a relatively small uh, number of uh, young people have changed the discourse in the United States because Americans are talking about inequality of wealth, income, and power in the last few weeks more than they have for the last 30 years. Unbelievable that it's had that effect. Now, it hasn't changed any real uh, life in, in the economy yet. But even now we're seeing politicians saying, well, maybe, maybe it's not so fair, uh, this tax system and so forth. So I've said that this can be, should be, I hope will be, uh, the beginning of what I call the new progressive movement. Because it does harken back, in my mind, to the Gilded Age of America at the end of the 19th century, which was then followed by the progressive era in America, were progressive leaders of both parties, Teddy Roosevelt of the Republican Party, Woodrow Wilson of the Democratic Party, undertook major reforms that made American society more democratic uh, and uh, more equal. And we need that now. And I think the Occupy movement could be the start of that process. Now, the progressive era lasted 25 years. It's a long, hard slog. The Occupy movement has been 11 weeks but it's been amazing in the first 11 weeks. That's a very hopeful, positive thought. So how, say we go back to the progressive movement. How long did it take for political legislation to emerge out of the protests of, the, of that period? Well, in the progressive era, we had a so-called populist movement in the American Midwest against the railroads, against uh, finance, against Wall Street, in fact. Uh, and it didn't lead to very much... Uh, but then in the 1890s, another big financial crisis in 1893, uh, William Jennings Bryan became a, pop, a 
progressive candidate for president, but he lost in 1896. Uh, the reason that Teddy Roosevelt came to office was that his boss was assassinated, uh, William McKinley, and all of a sudden there was a progressive leader as president. It took at least a decade, really, for major changes to start, and then I would say another 15 years for a whole spate of major legislation to follow. Things move faster now, but you can't expect it in 11 weeks. Uh, we were in for a, a long haul. I'd like to see a true progressive president of the United States. Of course, I'd like to see Obama play that role, but I'm a little bit dispirited by that. But I'd like to see a progressive candidate run and win the White House in 2016, for example. That's a quick timetable, but it's something that with a lot of political organization and public deliberation and public advocacy is not impossible. Uh, new progressive candidates could win even in the 2012 election at many different levels of government. Change will take time. America is the proverbial super tanker. It doesn't change direction very fast, but boy, do we need a different direction. And this Occupy movement has helped to get that started. And the financial transaction tax, what's your position on that? What chances has that got of coming through? The financial transactions tax is a good idea. Uh, it's a good idea on many counts to raise revenues in a progressive way and to help bring a lot of the uh, financial casino under control was an idea, of course, of the late Nobel laureate James Tobin more than 30 years ago. The time has come, and a lot of the world's ready for it, and indeed the European Commission has called for it. The UK has said, well, you know, we'd consider it, but only if the US would consider it. But the US, Wall Street and the White House. Tim Geithner, no chance. And that US opposition, uh, of course, uh, now triggers the cascade of others to say, well, maybe not. I'm still hoping Europe will do it. Europe should do it. Europe needs the revenues. Uh, Europe went through too much banking deregulation, uh, too much financial deregulation. Financial transactions tax is good for Europe, even if the U.S. doesn't do it. But we should continue to pressure the U.S. Uh, because Wall Street right now has run policies in the U.S. for decades, but it's led to disaster. We have to push Wall Street out of politics. They can Sure, they can be in the financial business, but under proper regulation and with the financial transactions tax. Jeff, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. And Jeffrey Sachs' book, The Price of Civilization, Economics and Ethics After the Fall, is out now, published by Random House. I'm Madeline Bunting. Thanks for listening. Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS, Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.